If you have your Bibles tonight, and you would, find Matthew chapter 27 as we are quickly finishing the book of Matthew and uh, are just on the horizon. And um, uh, tonight I want to talk to you about Christ died instead of me. That is not a phrase that we say a lot. We say Christ died for me, Christ died for you, but instead of is a word that uh, we don't use a lot. It's not a word that we use a lot in church, but uh, the church word is substitution. That Christ died in my place for my sins. And when we come to the 27th chapter of Matthew, we are coming to Jesus on the cross. And there are so many sermons that have been preached by so many wonderful preachers about the crucifixion, about the cross, about all of those things that I understand that I am not in that category. But tonight what I want to try to show to you and to remind you is the seriousness of sin required a substitutionary death. And we are living in a culture, we are living in a church that sin and the consequences of sin have been devalued. Very rarely do you hear someone who says, well, I would like to share with you why I think that is a sin. But plenty of people would love to stand up and say, well, I would like to explain to you why that isn't sin. Why it isn't a big deal. We don't have great theological discussions or great classes about, well, you know, I think the Bible teaches this as sin. I'm pretty sure it, it, it teaches it as a sin, and so I'm going to view it as sin. What we usually do is everything falls into the gray area. It falls into the secondary issues. It falls into the things where you can feel that, I can feel that, and we can all get along. But when you and I start looking at the crucifixion, and we are tonight, we need to remember that it was our sin. It was each and every one of our sins that He was taking the punishment for. It wasn't just to make you a better person. It wasn't to improve your standing. It wasn't to clean us up for church. It was literally that we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. We were literally on our way to hell and an eternal punishment away from God because of our sin our rejection of the holy, perfect person who is God. And yet Jesus comes and dies instead of us. In 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 18, if you have that Bible that I encourage you to bring on a regular basis, someone said this morning, I have a feeling that you want us to bring our Bibles to church. I said, ding, ding, ding. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. And... uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 is one verse that is a wonderful verse. It is a verse that talks about Christ's death and what He went through and um, suffered for our sins. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says these words in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive 
by the Spirit. That is literally a verse that we could preach for hours tonight, but due to the cold nature of the day and the looks that you're already giving me, and the fact that we have about 75 kids with kids' workers over there, I would not do that to them. I would absolutely do it to you, but I would not do it to them. But look what it says in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The crucifixion is not a repeatable event. That is why I believe that when God saves you, you cannot lose it. Because if you could lose it, Christ cannot die for you again. It is a one-time event that Christ did to take the punishment for our sins. It says there, the just for the unjust. It's talking about the one who is right, who is perfect, who is holy, dying for those who were not. But that next section of six words there should cause the child of God to rejoice that He might bring us to God. Those are seven words, by the way, but seven words that He might bring us to God. The reason you and I can have a relationship with God is not because you attend church, not because you take the Lord's Supper, not because you give financially, not because you are a member of this church. It is because Jesus purchased you through His death and brings you to the Father, brings you into the family of God. And so when you hear people talk about any other way to be saved, or any other things that become most important. It's not because you cannot be brought to God. You cannot be brought to the Father unless you are brought by the Son. And the Son brings us because He purchased us, because He suffered once for sin. Because of what He did on the cross. It says being put to death in the flesh. That is that He was punished for our sins. That His body died, that He was crucified. He did not fall asleep. He did not pass out. He was dead. He died for our sins, but made alive by the Spirit, that He was resurrected from the dead. And so this one verse literally sums up everything that we believe about who Jesus is, what He did for us, what it means, And so when we talk about sin with the attitude that we have now, that it's not a big deal, that sin doesn't really have consequences, that sin is not a big deal to talk about, what we've really said is, if sin's not a big deal, what Christ went through is not a big deal. That His suffering wasn't important. And so tonight I hope that as we look at this, we as God's people can be reminded of how special and how significant what Christ has done for us should mean to us. How it should drive us. How it should influence us. How it should shape who we are. And So if you would pray with me, and we'll begin. Father, tonight I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You that You loved us so much that you were willing to go through this to redeem us. And Father, while there is nothing good in us, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Lord, you loved us. So Lord, tonight I just pray that as we look at your crucifixion,
and what you went through and the significance of it. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts tonight. First of all, to those that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would show them their sin, their rejection of you, Lord, is permanent. There's nothing they can do without you. Father, tonight, for those of us that know you, I pray that you would stir up in us a love for you because of what you have done. Father, I ask tonight that you would speak, that you would work, that you would move all for your glory. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes tonight, and I hope that you will, uh, we look tonight that Jesus was humiliated for others by going to the cross. Jesus was humiliated for others. I didn't say by others, but for others. I have been humiliated by a lot of people in my life, and I have humiliated myself a lot of times in my life. But very rarely have I willingly been humiliated for someone else. That means if you make yourself look dumb, you're on that island all by yourself. I'm not going to jump in and be like, oh yeah, I did that too. Nope, you did it. I was not there. I was not a part of it. That was all you. But what we see in the crucifixion is that Jesus was humiliated for others. Look what it says in verse 32. Now as they came out, they man found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. When they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And last Sunday night we looked at how the prophecies of God are true this time. They will be true next time. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which is a reference to Psalm 22, verse 18. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. I want to show you that through this process we see the humiliation that Jesus went through. There in verse 32 it talks about the simple fact that someone had to help him carry the cross. This was not because this was a multiple participant sport. This was because Jesus' body was so broken and so beaten and so uh, diminished that he physically could not carry it on his own. If you remember, he had been beaten, he had been spit upon, his beard had been plucked out, he had been uh, totally and completely humiliated, stripped naked, clothed in robes, and then stripped naked again, and had his own clothes put on him. Now I know you are all spiritual, sanctified, super believers that never had a series of rebellion, but if you've ever been in a fight, no one wins. And you definitely don't win when you are ganged up on and don't fight back. And so I'm sure these men used great restraint when they were beating up our Lord. Well, we don't want to draw blood. We don't want to... No, I'm sure they were hitting and kicking and spitting and humiliating with the intent to harm. So we know that Jesus was wounded. And so as He is carrying His cross, He is not able to carry it by Himself, and so they carry someone else. The physical shame of 
being almost drug along, unable to walk. We see here that they bring him to Golgotha, and that is the place of the skull. They take him to a place that is public, that is humiliation can be on display. Not a place in private where you could hide, not a back alley where you could sneak away, but in front of everyone. If you remember that the Mount of Moriah where the temple and Jerusalem is and all that is going on is, is, is a place that can be seen, it is a place that, that can be witnessed. That's why the Bible talks about the multitudes walking by and mocking Him and humiliating Him because His humility and His being humiliated was on display. We see here that they crucified Him, divided His garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Why would you divide someone's garments? That means you can't leave them on them. So whether or not it is depicted well in the Easter plays and pictures, Jesus would have most likely been completely naked or very little that would have covered the shame. I don't know about you, but the thought of hanging naked in front of people, beaten and bruised and tortured, is humility. It is one of the most humbling things I could ever think about. And so we see here that as they watch Him, they watched Him, not because of a great love for Him, but out of spite, out of gloating, out of will He really be able to come off this cross? But most likely it is because enemies love to watch their enemies defeated. It is because when someone is hated by someone, you rejoice in their suffering. The Roman guards would have enjoyed this. The elders and high priests of the nation of Israel would have enjoyed this. There was no remorse, no embarrassment. This is exactly what they wanted. And then another humility, a humbling experience that would have brought great humiliation would have been who He was crucified with. I was listening to Adrian Rogers preach on this this last week and he was saying, can you imagine Barabbas who had been in prison knowing that that middle cross was for him because of his rebellion and his anger and his, his vicious nature? Now, I don't know about you those, but if you've ever seen the kids scared at the Easter program with Dave Dykstra being Barabbas, all right, that is a mild version of who Barabbas was. This is a man who had murdered. This is a man who had led rebellions. This is a man who was hated by the Romans and his own people. That middle cross in his mind was created for him with people who were like him, who deserved to be where they were. But yet Jesus takes that spot. And Adrian Rogers was preaching and he was talking about the simple fact of, can you imagine what's going through Barabbas' mind? as he is sitting in prison thinking, that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. And then to realize, it's not. You see, Jesus was physically humiliated. He was practically humiliated. He was humiliated by where He was. And when we think about that, it is overwhelming when we hear in today's world that sin doesn't matter that God overlooks our sin, that God understands our sin, that God allows our sin, that, that churches should embrace sin. 
But yet what we see is Christ was humiliated for our sin. And while we can be forgiven of our sin, why Jesus took the punishment of our sin, when we as Christians live in sin, we should be humiliated. Our sin should bother us. Our sin should cause us to reflect and to think that this is not right. This is not what the Spirit of God wants for me. And if you are here tonight and you are claiming to be a believer and you are living in open, rebellious sin against God, I'm not talking about you lost your temper in traffic. I'm not talking about are we having the debate of is 57, 58, 59 miles an hour sin. I'm not talking about that, which I would love to talk to you about that at some time. I'm talking about that tonight you are here with unforgiveness. If you're here and you will not trust God to overcome your fear, if you're here tonight and there's sexual sin or pride in your life that you have just came to a point where you are okay with it, tonight I want you to know that if the Spirit of God is not convicting you and dealing with you and working on you, there is a problem. There is a problem and you need to really get along with God and ask this question, have I ever truly been born again? Now, can you resist the Holy Spirit for a season? Absolutely. The Bible tells us, grieve not the Spirit of God. And I can tell you for a period of time in my life when I ran from God, when I had abandoned God, when I said I didn't believe in God, there was never a night when I put my head on the pillow that I didn't know that the Spirit of God lived within me and that I was not where God wanted me to be. I could try to drink it away. I could try to chase uh, women around. I could do all of those things. But when everything got quiet and the still, small voice was there, how can you seem to be so happy yet cry yourself to sleep so many nights? Why? Because the Spirit of God which was given to you because of what Christ did for you, loves you too much to abandon you. And we apologize for that. As churches, we apologize for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The fact that you came to church and something bothered you, that you're not comfortable, that there's something going on that you know is not right. And we should be celebrating the fact that God loves us enough to deal with us and draw people and break people down so that He can save them and change them and forgive them. And I have firmly believed this until God's people begin to really get broken over the sin that is in our life and in our church. We're going to come and we're going to go and that window is going to stay closed. Because why? It is only God who changes lives. It's only God who deals with us. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2 says in verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you. This is what Paul wanted for them. Think this way. Believe this way. Live this way. Which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. God wants you to be obedient and humble. Humble and obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted Him 
and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those things in heaven and of those things on the earth and of those things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The heart of God was to be humiliated, to be crucified, to be beaten, to be broken, that He might be glorified, that He might be worshipped. And that is what this church must never forget, that when we come to worship, we do not come to worship anyone on this stage or anyone in that choir or anyone sitting out there. We come to worship one person, and His name is Jesus. Everything is to be about Him. Everything is to be for Him. Everything is to be focusing on Him. Because why? He is the only one who died instead of me. Second thing I want to show you tonight is we're quickly running out of time. Is Jesus was ministering to others even on the cross. Not only was He humiliated on the cross, but He was ministering to others on the cross. Look in verse 39 through 44. And those who passed by blasphemed Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and He will believe Him. He trusted in God, let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with Him reviled Him with the same thing. You say, well, that don't make any sense. Looks like He was being humiliated again. But I want to show you something. There in verse 44 it says, Even the robbers as in plural, as in more than one, at some point were both mocking Him. But yet at some point something changed. Because if you have your Bible with you that I hope that you brought tonight, in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39, something has changed. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be me in paradise. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Something, what changed? What went from this man mocking Jesus, robbers, plural, to one worshiping Him? To one being saved by Him? From one dying and going to an eternity of punishment and another dying and going into an eternity of paradise? Well, ultimately, it was the Spirit of God God that drew him and changed him. But I want you to see see something for just a moment. If Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, this man would have never had an encounter with him. And so the next time you think God's put you in a tough spot to witness, 
Suck it up, buttercup. The next time God brings someone that makes your life miserable at work, but yet you have an opportunity to share the gospel, suck it up, buttercup. The next time someone makes fun of you for being a Christian, but yet it opens a door for you to share your faith, buttercup. Because even though Jesus was being humiliated in a way that we can never imagine, He was still there to minister to that thief, to that criminal, to that man who would never tithe, to that man who would never attend a church service, to that man who could never be baptized, to that man who would never take the Lord's Supper, but yet God told him, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, that is why I believe that nursing homes, assisted living, and hospitals are one of the most important ministries that church has. But I don't like the way they smell. Amen. Because why? Just maybe God will allow you to walk by a room of someone who is taking their last breath and share the gospel and they will hear what? Today you will be with me in paradise. You say, well, Jake, they won't make very good church members. Don't worry about it. Lord, take care of it. You say, well, Jake, they'll never give. How, how does the church get built? Don't you worry about it. But what we see here is that Jesus was ministering even on the cross. And if our heart is to be the same heart that He has, if our mind is to be the same mind that He has, then whatever we're going through, whether it was self-inflicted or God has allowed it, you and I need to be looking for ways to use it for the gospel. Your testimony, the things that you're ashamed of, the things that you would never speak about because of how painful and how broken and how difficult they are, remember this one thing. They will never be more humiliating than what Jesus went through to be able to share and minister to this thief. The only thing I can think of to picture this in my mind is Benghazi. If you've ever looked at pictures of what the United States government left and did to those men in that compound and how they were treated, it is the only thing I can comprehend about being humiliated physically, just broken and beaten. And, and, it's the only, and those pictures are burned into my mind. And if you'd like to, to get my opinions on the government at that time, I'd love to share with you any other time but here. But it's the only thing I can think of about what it would have been like to watch Jesus go through what He went through. To be abandoned, to be humiliated, to watch a group of people celebrating this kind of behavior, but yet remembering that He did it so that I could live. That I could be saved. And the third and final thing tonight, Jesus volunteered to go through this all to save us. Jesus volunteered to go through all of this to save us. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And there are two ways you can pronounce this, the American version, the non-American version. Either one is not incorrect. You can say it, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthan. Or you can say it, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. Either way is fine. But this is what matters. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquakes and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to Him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. What we see here in this last section of Scripture is the death of our Lord. And I think that saying there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is one that we can read and it caused some problems. Because if you've ever read the New Testament, the Bible tells us that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And what we know in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus was not saying that the Father was unfaithful. He was not saying that He had been abandoned. What He is experiencing at this moment was what it was like to take the punishment of every sin that has ever been committed. It's under the same idea of in the garden when Jesus sweated drops of blood. The physical, the spiritual, the emotional toil of taking the punishment for sin. The fact that He was taking the wrath of God that I deserve, that you deserve. In this moment, He is taking all of it. And then He died. Now, there are a couple things I want to just say in the little time we have left. The seriousness of sin must be addressed in the church again. I understand that we welcome all. We want people to come no matter where they're at or what they're like. We welcome in the most vile of society that the society has given up on. Whatever they're covered with, whatever they're poked with, whatever they look like when they get here, we need to understand that we believe the love and mercy of God can change them. But that view of the people of God must be changed. That the people of God hate sin. We hate our own sin. We hate the sin that others struggle with. Why? Because sin always has consequences. Now, I know what you're saying tonight, Jake, but my, it's my kids. Jake, it's my grandkids. Jake, you don't understand. Your kids are still little. You're right. I have no idea what it was like to be my mother. But I can tell you there was a period of time that it was not pleasant. More so than it is now. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to be woke up in the middle of the night not knowing that your son's not home, not that he's where he's alive, is he dead? Is he, who knows? I have no idea what that's like. I have no idea what it's like to sit down across from a child and them tell you that they no longer believe that there is a God. 
I have no idea what it's like to sit down from a grown child and hear that I am now homosexual. I have no idea what that's like, and I do not claim tonight to know that. But what I do know is this, is that sin always destroys. And my job is not to make my children's decisions for them, but it is definitely to warn them that the choices they make can either bring life or death, hope or hurt, healing or destruction. And as a parent, I cannot force them to do anything when they get old enough to run or to live on their own. But we must not be silent. Long gone are the days when parents would sit down across from their children and say that sex before marriage will have consequences. Long ago were the days of God's people used to say that, hey, I know that alcohol and partying and running around seems wonderful today, but yet it will destroy your life. Long ago were the days that God's people used to stand up and say, children and families need to be in church. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We have become so terrified that people will leave that we refuse to proclaim. And if we want to see God's blessings, someone has to be willing to stand. If you want God to bless your home, someone has to take a stand. If you want God to bless your marriage, someone has to take a stand. Because I think it's so wonderful in verse 51, because then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. What we see is this, that we now have access to God. The barrier that separated man from God had been torn. The way that we could be reconciled with God had been made. And so while we might seem closed-minded, we might seem cruel, we might seem out of touch because of our views on sin, it is only because we believe that Jesus can save you from your sins. That Jesus can give you hope when you have made a life of hurt and brokenness and despair. And I believe that when the Bible teaches us that God is not willing that any should perish, that is what it means. And so you can come to me for whatever lifestyle, whatever choices you've made, no matter how much you've mocked God, ran from God, blasphemed God, and know this, that there is a God who loves you. And if you want mercy, you can have it. If you want to be Shemai like we looked at this morning, you can have mercy. And so while we preach against sin, we preach against the hurt of this world, we preach that there is a God who loves them. You said, Jake, what does that have to do with anything about that he volunteered for this task? I'm really glad that you asked. And if you have that Bible that I encourage you to bring to church, flip over to John chapter 10. Jesus is talking about the sheep and the shepherd and the door. He's talking about the thief and being the good shepherd. And I want to skip down to verse 17 tonight. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my 
self. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Now we read that as believers and we are so thankful. But I want you to read what happens in verse 19. Therefore, because of what he had just said, there was a division among the Jews because of these saying. I read it as a Christian and it gives me great hope that Jesus loved me enough to be willing to go to the cross, to willingly lay down His life. That He loved me that no man could take His life, but He willingly gave it. But yet there are others who cause division. And said, and many of them, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to Him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? What you see are there are those who believed and those who did not believe. But it didn't change the fact that Jesus said it. It did not change the fact that Jesus was going to lay down His life. And friends, tonight I know that when you look around this country, and you can even look around in church and get discouraged. Remember this one simple thing. Sin has not stopped destroying lives. But Jesus has not stopped saving people's lives. As long as God leaves us here, and as long as we will be humble and obedient, those two are key. God will use us for His glory. God will use us to reach lost people, hurting people, broken people, to have hope. But I can promise you this, if we get prideful that we know better than God, if we decide that obedience doesn't matter, that we can just do whatever we want, we can live however we want, we can support whatever we want, and God has to bless it, friends, that baptistry will be used for storage. And what a sad day that will be when we meet, we sing, we give, we fellowship, but yet the power and presence of the Lord is not here. And so my prayer to you tonight is to be thankful for what Jesus has done for you. But if you're here tonight and you are not saved, tonight can be that night. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, because He died instead of you. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for Jesus. Lord, there's nothing good in me. I don't deserve the privilege of preaching. I do not deserve the privilege of even being called Yours. And tonight, Lord, I thank You that You saw fit to save me as a young boy in a revival meeting at a grocery store. And tonight, Lord, I am so thankful for this group of people, the love they have for You. And God, I pray tonight that You would Work in them in a mighty way. Lord, I pray for those that are in this room, for those that are in the Children's Center, those who are in the Family Life Center with the youth, that tonight, Lord, Your Holy Spirit would be at work. Lord, we would see people saved. Father, we thank You. We pray, Lord, that You would be glorified.
in all that is said and done. And Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.